Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas on how to lead your church into the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Now, here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. This is Lauren Richmond Jr., and I'm welcoming you to another episode hosted by Martha Tatarnik, featuring guest Michael Graham. Michael Graham is program director for the Keller Center. He's also the executive producer and writer of As in Heaven and has written a forthcoming book entitled The Great Dechurching. He received his MDiv at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. He's also a member at Orlando Grace Church. He is married to Sarah and they have two kids. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. I am your guest host this week, Martha Tatarnik. And with me today is Michael Graham, who is co-author of the book, The Great Dechurching. And uh, Michael, welcome to the show. I'm really excited to talk to you about this particular piece of work that you've done. Thank you so much for having us. I'm really excited about this. Thank you. So uh, before we get into talking about the great dechurching, we always like to start with just a little bit of background so people know your context and, uh, and you know, what's sort of brought you to this point in your work in ministry. So maybe you could just start off by telling our audience a little bit about the faith tradition in which you grew up. Yeah, so I have a kind of maybe a story that's common for some, hopefully not for many, um, too many. But um, yeah, I grew up in the kind of fen- fundamentalist uh, dispensational Baptistic circles um, in the United States. Um, particularly in, in Florida, uh, in Orlando, Florida, where um, I grew up and still uh, live and work. Um, yeah, so that was not necessarily, <laughs> that wasn't a good experience for me. Okay. Um, uh, you know, I was in, I was in church quite a bit, you know, Sunday morning, Sunday night, uh, Wednesday night, and, you know, sat under at least 2,000 different unique teaching times before <clears throat> anybody ever actually explained to me what the gospel was. The lion's share of what I kind of grew up with was, um, yeah, kind of end times charts, you know, really long, (laughs) complex charts about when Jesus returns and and how, and then uh, kind of obsessions with young earth creationism and humans and dinosaurs living together and, you know, all that kind of stuff. It it doesn't make any sense unless you probably, you know, live live through through all of that. But um, that was kind of what I grew up with. Um, in terms of tradition now, you just kind of called me, you know, broadly in the, you know, uh, Protestant reform tradition um, and right. uh, leaning Baptistic, but not, not Baptist with an, not a Baptist with an uppercase B, just Baptistic. Um, so Baptistic. Lots of, lots of friends and yeah, lots of friends in the Presbyterian and Anglican and Episcopal worlds as well. So, oh, good. Well, being in the Anglican world, I'm glad to hear hear that. So, um, yeah, you kind of reference that uh, 
that maybe that tradition didn't make a ton of sense to you either, even though you grew up in it. Um, how is that sort of different from uh, the tradition that you serve in now? Well, I think there's just clarity on what the gospel is and things that are in the center and then things that are secondary and tertiary and beyond that. So just having, you know, clarity on those things is helpful and, you know, kind of balance between <clears throat> the life of the mind, the life of the heart, and the kind of outward movement of um, the gospel and its implications. Um all of those things are, it's just a lot more helpful. Um, cause what I grew up with was just pretty much the primary tactic for Christianity was, was one of culture war. And so I don't think that that oh, okay. is a, um, it is a good strategy, um, moving forward. So, yeah. Um, so, you know, I realize this can be a bit of a loaded question, but what's, what's sort of the Cole's notes of, getting from a to b like where where did uh what were sort of the touchstones in getting to the place that you're in now yeah um the big pieces for me were uh getting into the bible um so particularly uh an inductive bible study a year-long inductive bible study in the book of galatians um mm. so that's when the gospel first became clear to me um was kind of going through um, that book, uh, in a year long fashion, verse by verse, you know, thought, thought for thought. So, um, you know, from there it was just, I think just healthy discipleship, um, you know, slowly and surely. And then, um, getting out of the kind of churches that I grew up in and into just healthier churches. So I had a background with Campus Crusade for Christ. So I've, you know, worked with um, traditions, you know, kind of all over the map um, there and was at a free church for undergrad, a non-denominational church in high school and, um, you know, Reformed Baptist Church currently um, have worked in the Presbyterian, you know, have worked in a Presbyterian church and now work for um, the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics, which is, you know, obviously inter interdenominational um, underneath the gospel coalition. So, um, yeah, just work with work on a daily basis with people across a pretty wide swath of traditions. So yeah, I like that's that. Feel wonderful. With that. Yeah, it's so important. And I think that that, uh, that comfort across traditions is very evident in the, the great de-churching, the writing that you've just done. And it's interesting, you know, even hearing you just like name those Coles notes, because in a lot of ways, I think we could not have grown up in more di different, uh, Christian contexts. I, you know, totally grew up in the mainline. Uh, liberal church. And yet, I would say, um, you know, I had a similar kind of spiritual shift, awakening, um, conversion in like at a particular stage in my life, just getting into the Bible and, um, and having to, to really consider for myself what this means to me. Um, and uh, I, I sort of describe it as a falling in love, like falling in love with Jesus. Um, 
But, you know, I think regardless of the traditions that we grow up in, we, we kind of need to come to that, that stage. So, uh, is there a spiritual practice that, um, that you've developed that you have found particularly meaningful on your journey? Yeah, I think there's a uh, there's a couple key things for me. You know, obviously, you know, cultivating a healthy devotional life in God's Word and and in prayer are obviously key and central. Um, I think also just having a couple very deep friendships um, has been helpful for me. Um, and uh, I think just you know the regular diet of um, you know. Uh, being a, a regular, you know, a regular church member. I found myself for the first time in, you know, 15 years of not being, you know, actual pastoral call. Um, so I'm just a, a regular church member, um, with no real title besides like children's ministry volunteer. Um, so I think, I think that those things are important too. I think it's important for, um, I've also found a lot of spiritual vitality in making sure I, I have maintain and grow many relationships with people who don't know Jesus yet. Um, so mm-hmm. I think I, I just, I derive a lot of spiritual life and energy from having, um, calm, uh, empathetic conversations with people who, uh, either used to know Jesus or don't know, you know, don't know Jesus yet. So, um, I think that just kind of all those things, um, I don't think there's really anything, you know, in terms of like, you know, secret sauce or anything special besides just, you know, word and sacrament and community and, um, just something, uh, something of a inner life to, uh, to the faith and, you know, outward movement into the, you know, the people, you know, neighbors and other people who I'm in regular contact with who don't know Jesus yet. Yeah, I appreciate your naming that as a spiritual practice because I I think that that um is a really important part of spiritual health and um and keeping grounded in a respectful and open and listening posture to the world around us. I think that's really important. Um I'm also like quite intrigued as somebody who has been in pastoral leader- leadership for like most of my adult life. I am intrigued by the difference of uh that spiritual discipline of being just part of a congregation rather than leading it like that. How long have you been out of a pastoral call? Yeah, a little over a year. Um I had another season in my life of about four years um, of that where I was, I was in a different career for, you know, for about four years. So um, I'm maybe, I don't know if used to it is the right way to frame it, but I have some experience just being a, a lay person. So um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's important. I think it's important to still be at church and, um, and really to, as much as possible, never miss. And I think it's also important to volunteer. Yeah, no, I hear you. That's, that's great. Thank you. So as I noted at the uh, start of our podcast today, we are here to talk about a book that you have co-authored called The Great Dechurching, Who's Leaving, Why They Are Going, and What Will It Take to Bring Them Back? 
And uh, I, as I noted, I've been really looking forward to this conversation. I think that what you offer here in terms of the research and then uh, the insights and, uh, you know, the pastoral wisdom around the the research, I think, is really important for us across Christian denominations. Um, so let's let's get into the great de-churching. Maybe you can just start by telling us a little bit about what led you to this research and this writing. So um, we, uh, Jim Davis, my co-author, and I, um, and he was he was the teaching he is the teaching pastor at our church, Orlando Grace Church, and I I hired him as <laughs> the executive pastor at the time, and uh, we'd run across some data that had said that 42, 43% of our context had de-churched. And we were familiar with the term and um but we were we were really surprised at the you know at the size of at the size of that because our city at the time was around the same percent evangelical as Seattle and New York City. And we were just kind of a little bit dumbfounded at that because the city doesn't feel as, you know, maybe spiritually malnourished as Seattle or New York City. And, and it just kind of dawned on us of like, oh, those are unchurched contexts were a de-churched context. Unchurched meaning, you know, being a technical term for people who have more or less never been regular churchgoers in their life and right. de-churched being people who at least used to go um, regularly on at least a monthly basis for an extended period of their life. And so, um, just kind of pinpointing that our city was very much a de-churched context was important to us. So we started to try to digest everything that we could find on, okay, well, why have people de-churched? And sadly, what, what we learned was there wasn't really much out there on this. Um, any of the studies that had been done, um, they they were many of them were over a decade old. Um, they weren't as as granular enough as what we needed to have um, actionable mm -hmm. insights, so that we could make decisions about how we needed to engage with our context or frame our relationship to our city differently. Or what do we need to learn? And so there just wasn't much actionable information. So um, Jim and Jim and I are just kind of like naturally curious people as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, we also had this podcast called As in Heaven. And um, we were going to do a whole season on de-churching, but we didn't want to just like kind of like lick our fingers and, you know, throw it up in the air and just like, you know, um, we wanted to have hard information on, you know, kind of what was going on. Mm -hmm. And we assumed that we would be able to find it, but... It just wasn't there, certainly not at the at the level of specificity that what you'd need to do a deep dive on something like that. And so, um, you know, uh, Jim and I went and raised a ton of money to um, go and, uh, you know, do conduct our, our three-phase study. And so, yeah, uh, engaged with about 7,000 um, adult Americans. And um, on the third phase of that study, um, asked about 600 questions each. Um, pertaining to, uh, you know, why did, why did you leave evangelical churches and, um, and, uh, you know, are you willing to return? If so, on what conditions, um, those different kinds of things. So. It sounds like a bit of an, oh shoot moment. Like, 
you sort of launch yourself into this project assuming that the information is going to be there and then discover that, oh, no, actually, you're going to have to um, do the work in terms of putting this information together. So thank you for doing that because it does seem like incredibly important research and uh, incredibly important research questions, um, but definitely expanded the the workload of the project that you were undertaking <laughs> yeah we applied for a bunch of grants too and we got rejected for, for oh. all of them so right <laughs> it's <laughs> it's okay we, we we jim and i have always been pretty decent at support raising so we probably should have just started there to, <laughs> from the beginning yeah save yourself a lot of time and agony i guess <laughs> um there were a number of like surprising points for me in reading the book and reading through the research. I think maybe one of the things that I found most surprising um, and interesting was the connection between your research and what I would say is the American dream. Um, I thought that to a large extent, your research is actually sort of an indictment of the American dream, that there is a connection between the failure of American institutions as a whole to allow people to flourish and the rates at which people are disconnecting from the church. Um, can you just say a little bit about this connection and, and whether it surprised you? Yeah, it was very surprising to us, you know, because if the, the previous narratives that there were about de-churching were really twofold. And the the stories that were told before kind of depended a bit upon your information diet. So let's say, you know, you're, you know, in North America and you had an information diet that leaned a little bit to the left. Well, the story that was being told there about why all these people were leaving church was, well, these are, you know, here's a soccer metaphor. These were own goals primarily caused by institutional churches um, failing in their work. So right. maybe they were failing in their work through racism, abuse, misogyny, political syncretism, these different kinds of things. And is that taking place? Yes. If you had a kind of a right-leaning information diet, the story that was being told there was one of primarily of secularism, mm -hmm. of how um, it's the culture. Um, and secularism, you know, could man could look in a number of different ways. It could be political progressivism. It could be uh, the sexual revolution. And it's, you know, in the way that that has uh, impacted how we think about um, sexuality and gender and these different kinds of things. So that's kind of been the story that has been told on, you know, if your information diet leaned a little bit to the right. And so, you know, is that taking place? Is, you know, is that an impact on this phenomenon? Yes. However, the, the big story that we learned is a really boring one. And mm -hmm. that is that most people left for very pedestrian reasons. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like, it's really what you alluded to. It's things like the number one reason why people, you know, de-churched is they moved. Um, mm -hmm. be, you know, after that, it's attendance was inconvenient. 
um, some kind of change in your family, marriage, divorce, remarriage, birth of a child, um, those kinds of things. And so what we call these reasons, we call these things in the book, casual dechurching. This is kind of unintentional dechurching mm-hmm. as opposed to um, a different category that we coined. We coined the term um, dechurched casualties. Dechurch casualties are people who left church highly intentionally, usually because they had one or more negative experiences with either individuals who were, you know, at, you know, associated with church or negative experience and or um, bad experiences with the institutional church. And so um, the, the, in terms of the, the, you know, zooming out to the 40 million adult Americans who have left the church in the last 30 years, um, 30 of those 40 million, we would say left casually. And about 10 million are de-church casualties. Okay. That really surprised us. We would have thought that the split on that would probably have been more flip-flopped um, based on, you know, just kind of our own assumptions kind of moving in. And I wouldn't have thought that just the reasons for dechurching would have been so boring um, right. relative to what we saw, you know, in the data. And I, and to your point, it's a hundred percent an indictment on the American dream. No doubt about that. I mean, you know, the, the, certainly the most important factor in why people dechurch, which really just boils down to their habits and rhythms and their habits and rhythms no longer prioritize, um, you know, gathering together um, for corporate worship and, you know, sitting under the preaching of the word and, and sitting under the sacraments and, you know, all of those things. And so it does point to, you know, I, I think when I think about kind of core idols in the West, I think about power and control, comfort and escape, power, control, comfort and escape. I think those first two idols are fight type idols. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we all have stimuli and, you know, when we, when we start living out of our amygdalas, we, you know, either our, our response is to ramp up or to ramp down. And so, you know, th- those two power and control, those are like kind of ramp up idols. And then the, you know, going more catatonic um, is comfort and escape. Um, and those are flight type idols. And so I, I think that, um, a lot of what what I'm seeing here are more, you know, basically flight flight type idolatry, um, you know, idolatry of the American dream, you know, leading to for other forms of comfort and escape. They're just getting people out of the habit and rhythm of um, of going to church. I, I think the de-church casualties. Um, I think I don't necessarily think that there's as much idolatry um, going on there. Certainly, certainly some depending, you know, if, you know, oh, I had a really bad experience, but I, I actually want to, you know, disobey God's word in this area here. I want to indulge, you know, this particular thing. Um, certainly that could be in the mix, but I think, um, many of the people who are de-church casualties, um, actually left because they had a pretty legitimate, um, Mm -hmm bad experience or experiences with individuals and or institutions. So, yeah, I do think it's an indictment on um, just the American dream in general. Um, Yeah. Well, and you know, I felt like you really named with compassion and insight that 
like if you're somebody who is struggling to make ends meet and working a multitude of jobs and um again like sort of failed by the american dream failed by that idea that you can um like get this really great lifestyle if you just apply yourself and work hard enough um that simply like there isn't a lot of time left over at the end of any given working day uh and and often not on weekends if you're working shift work and that kind of thing in order to make room for the patterns of of corporate gathering and uh being part of a community that you know that uh that need of um of just trying to get by can sort of be all consuming in in a way that's very isolating and uh you know that that to me calls for kind of corporate solutions um rather than than blaming and again i i thought that you did that really well in in making those connections yeah thank you yeah the dechurching as a phenomenon has disproportionately impacted those of lower socioeconomic or or lower educational backgrounds for the exact reasons that you've enumerated here. Yeah, and that's sort of another um, one of those surprises that I think flies in the face of a lot of what we hear. Like we, and you kind of named this, that we can sort of assume that the more education that you have, the more critical you're going to be of religious narratives, but that's not what the research showed at all. Yeah, the and and that's wild, Martha, because <clears throat> if you're familiar with with secularization thesis inside of sociology, you know that as countries around the world and or, you know, different people groups around the world, um <clears throat> as they modernize and as their GDP goes up per person, um the the role that religion plays in society unilaterally declines right you know the the countries that are you know and the the converse is also true so the united states in you know even canada that's true um you know in terms of secularization thesis the united states is this bizarre outlier that um is still relatively religious um despite being you know very highly developed economically you know gdp wise and so yeah it is a bit of a you know, it is a strange phenomenon to to see. So normally, yeah, education and economic development would have an inverse relationship with um, with things like you know religion or you know going to church and these different kinds of things. However, that just hasn't been the case here. In fact, if you're evangelical, you are only three percent of evangelicals who have gotten graduate degrees go on to de church, and mm-hmm. that's one eighth the rate of those who, who even just have a, um, uh, have, uh, have done some college. Um, right. And so, you know, you know, with each step of additional education among evangelicals, um, dechurching really drops off, um, as a phenomenon. So it kind of goes, kind of flies in the face of some of the, you know, kind of the historical boogeyman there of, you know, it's, 
you know, it's secular education that's kind of taking people away from the church. It really doesn't seem to be the case, even though a lot of people, you know, the lion's share of dechurching does occur between ages 13 and 30, and especially 18 and, and 20, 18 and 30. And so I think that there's just a little bit of um, oversimplification that went on there of like, oh, well, if people are living between 18 and 30, it's got to be, you know, higher education that's kind of the cause of that. And it really doesn't seem to be the ca- that that really is the case. I think really it has it has more to really just kind of the overarching story of just there's a lot of shifts that happen during that time frame, you know, of going from high school to um you know, post high school, whether that's college or, you know, a trade and then moving on from, you know, kind of early, early trade or, you know, graduating college into, you know, career into young adulthood. Well, you know, there's a lot of shifts that go on there. You're probably moving a couple times, you know, in that process. A lot of your habits and rhythms are getting, you know, changed and disrupted, you know, at multiple different points. And there's just a lot of off ramps there, you know, that, aren't necessarily even intentional off ramps, you know? So, um, yeah, so I think I'll, that the, you know, the edge, the edge, yeah, the educational boogeyman, um, just doesn't seem to be there. Yeah. It gets debunked a bit. Um, I, I think the fluidity of relationships through those times too, uh, gets named very well in your book because so much of, uh, of, what you talk about in terms of what keeps people in the church and what brings them back is relationships and feeling that's like right. they're they're not just going alone. Um, yeah. So let's talk about that uh, that divide between casualties and casual dechurching, um, because I think that uh, that. You definitely um, hold the church accountable across all denominations for the ways in which we have legitimately failed, um, that there has been lack of faith formation. Uh, There have certainly been cases of abuse and neglect in faith communities, and I think that we always need to be held to account for those failings, um, yep. and we need to to put in structures and systems and accountabilities to to be better. But in the category of that, like casual dechurching, um, I think that uh, that it's fair to name that the church isn't necessarily solely responsible uh for that deconnection uh disconnection that happens um we're sort of working within an overarching system of north american society that is very much driven by assumptions of individualism and capitalist values that don't favor patterns of community. And I think that when you talk about those uh, those really boring reasons why people leave church, it sort of boils down to, like, we live in a society that just really isn't set up to make it easy or favorable for people to be part of community. Um, we're really taught to go it alone and to look after me and my own um that's 
that's just sort of the the water that we're swimming in. Um, secularism isn't really the fault of the church, but I think that your book, uh, you know, is clearly written with a pastoral perspective. And so although that might not be our fault, it doesn't mean that we can't respond. So right. can you just say a little bit about that response? Like, how can we respond to having to go so against the grain of of the water that we're swimming in? I think I'm mixing metaphors there, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. So, you know, we live in this, you know, disenchanted age. It's largely downstream from, you know, how secularism has you know, kind of washed over us. And I think historically it's been easy to see what the secular left looks like, but I think there's an ascendant, particularly in the United States, an ascendant secular right as well that has a different competing vision that really doesn't, that certainly doesn't have God at the center of it, you know, as well. Um, maybe some caricatures there. Um, but I, I think that some of the answers are really quite boring, you know, as as well to these things, you know, I think we have to double down on, uh, embodied formation. Mm. Um, meaning, you know, it, it's just important that we be in community with each other. It's important that we also, um, build thicker institutions. Um, I think that our churches also need to be able to emphasize that we serve, you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God and for which it serves is something that's not just true, but it's also good and it's beautiful. You know, when I think about the 20th century, I think a lot of the, the focus there, particularly in terms of apologetics and defenses of the Christian faith, most of those things were centered around questions of whether or not Jesus or his gospel was true or is the Bible true. And th those are good. Those are good questions to ask. Those are good questions to bring answers to. There's, I think, there's good and satisfying reasons for all of those things. But I think in the 21st century, um, in our kind of age of disenchantment, uh, the our secular age, you know, to borrow from Charles Taylor, um, the questions are more: Is Jesus good, and is does he have a beautiful vision for the world? And so I think we have to have. Um, we have to bring satisfactory answers on, you know, is Jesus, does he have a, is he good for me? Um, and is his vision for, you know, the world, is it more beautiful than, you know, the secular vision, you know, that I have, whether that's a secular left vision or a secular right vision. And so I think that building thicker institutions that, you know, that emphasize, you know, truth, goodness, and beauty, and we do that in a variety of environments, um, you know, whether that, you know, that's certainly at a minimum, <laughs> it's corporate worship, but also having opportunities for formation of the mind through Christian education, formation of the heart, um, you know, things like community groups and, um, you know, various different spiritual disciplines, and then having outward movement as well um, in, being, in, in being equipped on what it looks like to relate to our context in ways that are comprehensible and mm -hmm. compelling. And so I think those are, you know, th some of the 
you know, and I think we have to also build resilience on the individual and institutional levels um, in refusing to get slotted into the various binaries that culture wants to kind of foist upon us. And mm-hmm. so um, I think the the simplest of those to explain it would be political binaries. You know, we don't, you know, I don't serve, you know, the kingdom of America or, or just the Western civilization. I serve the kingdom of God. And so at points, there'll be places where that vision of, you know, kingdom ethics looks more consonant with one political party or the other on this subject or that subject. But there's no monopoly that's there um, with respect to those things, the way that those things exist today. And so I think we have to be, um, and, and that's not a fun place to be, you know, when you, you find your, your, yourself in a place of prophetic critique of in multiple different directions at the same time. But I think that this is something that we have to embrace one, because <laughs> how dare we ever put ourselves above the Bible? Mm-hmm. And, and two, how dare we put ourselves above the kingdom of God? We have to serve him. And so, yeah, will there be points where you know there's more friction and some places where there's less friction with culture in one way or culture in a different way? Sure. But we... We have to be, you know, to borrow from Trevin Wax, we have to be multi-directional leaders um, who are able to kind of walk and chew gum at the same time and say, you know, hey, you know, this thing is a problem here, but you know what, this other thing over here is also, you know, a problem as well. And we have to be okay with not, you know, you know, having, having multiple different, you know, groups of people a little um, prickly with us. So... Not trying yeah, that, to not trying to elicit those things. We're not trying to be, you know, to be abrasive. Um, I want to be as, you know, compelling and winsome as possible. But, you know, we also have, you know, ethics and such to uphold. And um and there's a there's a vision for human flourishing that's there in the text. And, you know, we want other people to experience that, you know, that human flourishing. And we believe that there's also common good um found in, you know, in in these ways of you know, following the Jesus path. Yeah, so I have a couple of follow-up questions immediately to uh, what you've just shared here. First of all, I I do have to ask, and, you know, I'm Canadian, um, so I look at American culture from an outside perspective. But, like, have you received some pushback from certain Christian political factions that like there is some critique in your book of of I would say just how mixed up uh the the gospel has gotten into certain political agendas in the in the United States and 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 maybe a a, a stance that can be on the more aggressive, non-listening side of of things in in those agendas, like what's the pushback mean from what you share in this book? I would have thought that that we would have gotten more pushback um, 
in this because, you know, we were certainly, you know, critical of things like racism, abuse, um, misogyny, and political syncretism, particularly Mm -hmm. political syncretism of a Christian nationalist bent. Um, And I think one of the bigger surprises in the book was that people are dechurching faster on what we call the secular right than they are the secular left. Now, some of that might be that, you know, it looks like a lot of the dechurching that happened in the 90s, 80s, and the aughts look to be more on the secular left. And so maybe there's just less people on the secular left who are still in church. Okay. Um, but I, w- but we've been pretty critical as well of, you know, it's like when, if you look at the chapters on, you know, the, the dechurching that's taken place out of mainline and Roman Catholic context, I mean, the data was, was really brutal. Um, hmm. There, I mean, the view of the Bible among dechurched mainliners and dechurched Roman Catholics was abysmal. I mean, terrible. Like the 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 view of the Bible was was even lower than some of the worst. You know, some of the most biblically illiterate. I mean, look, the cultural Christians. This is uh, about eight million people who left um, evangelical churches, and of whom these people only one percent of them said that Jesus was the son of God, hmm. that group had a higher view of the Bible than on average than the people who were in the, who left mainline or Roman Catholic traditions. So I think in some ways, I don't know, maybe, um, but then again, it's like, it's not like there's been many people who have been, you know, on the hard right and hard left who have, you know, read, you know, read the book and or reached out, um, you know, to, to talk. Um, so we haven't really received too much, um, pushback to that end. Maybe it's just cause we're equal opportunity <laughs> offenders, <laughs> but I mean, then again, it's also, it's just like, well, it's data. Right. And so like, what are you going to say? You know, there there's, you know, data is descriptive. And so what are you going to do? Are you with the, you know, the thousands of people who, you know, told us why they left, you know, I mean, I think where maybe where people might take, you know, a different approach or might have more critique would be in like, okay, in light of this descriptive, you know, things that you see, like they might take some issues with the prescriptions of what to do in light of that. But um, those have been pretty mild. Well, and like you say, maybe there is a self-selection that happens in reading the book in the first place. Like you have to have a certain yep. level of curiosity and openness to read the book in the first place. So that's good. I'm glad that that you haven't had that pushback. I was definitely curious about that. So let's follow up on the beauty piece. I uh, I, I love that question, you know, as being a central question around belief is is what Jesus has to offer as a vision for the world is a beautiful. And I think that that is connected very much to to the question that I would raise and that I continue to raise as I look at decline in the mainline church, as I look at my own work in pastoral leadership. Um, I've written about this, this question quite extensively myself, but but it's a question of like, why does any of this matter? Um, like, if if the churches collapse, so what? Um, now, obviously, there's a, a pretty 
basic answer to that question that uh, that centers around the saving of souls. Um, but I'm wondering whether we can just like put a pin in that answer and 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 just unpack a few more of the practical here and now uh, offerings that Christian community I think uh, delivers and that are at risk of being lost. And again, I think that is connected to like the vision that Jesus has for this world, like being a beautiful one. Like what why do why does it matter that the Christian community continues for the sake of the here and now? Yeah, so let's say you're 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 listening to this and you're atheist, agnostic, um, you know, maybe you're de-churched or maybe you're you've never been churched. You know, why should I care about this part- this particular phenomenon any more than just a sociological curiosity or maybe the ways in which it's tangentially related to political power and these different kinds of things. So, what I would say to that would be um, you should care about this primarily, you know, w- one major touch point in that would be basically the social safety net. Mm-hmm. Um, economists, um, you know, have uh, have kind of tried to put quantitative numbers on on these kinds of things. And the at least in the, the studies in America, the the average the ballpark is, you know, around 40 percent of the social sh- safety net in our country is uh, related to uh, religious institutions. And so, you know, it isn't just, you know, contrary to (laughs) maybe the political discourse in America. It, you know, a lot of the social safety net is, is coming from, you know, nonprofits and um, particularly ones that have, you know, religious motivations to them. And so when you think about the kind of shift that we've seen of, you know, 40 million adults, you know, leaving, leaving church, you know, that's $1.3 trillion in, you know, in income that has left um, the churches. And if you, you know, if you average, you know, the two, two and a half percent um, giving rates of, you know, households, you're talking, I mean, that's $25 billion that just left um, the social safety net, you know, of our, um, in our country. And so, that's that's not insignificant, and so you know the the dechurching phenomenon will certainly have um, deleterious negative uh, impacts in terms of people that don't have any connection um, or care at all about our mm-hmm. Jesus, the Bible, and you know the kingdom of God, and and you know why why did Jesus um, live, die, and you know rise rise from the dead. So I think those are real reasons to have concern about this particular phenomenon um, above and beyond, you know, the kind of salvific aspects to these things. Yeah, it's really something that's on my mind uh, continually in in my context in downtown St. Catharines, um, because, you know, we have a significant population of unhoused uh, food insecure people. And by and large, those who are stepping up to do something about it around housing and around feeding programs are Christians. And I, I don't think that we understand here in Canada, and probably I'm hearing you say in America as well, 
just the degree to which uh, society is better for all of us because of people of faith uh, filling in a lot of those gaps around the social safety net. And, you know, I think that you touch on uh, some other components of, of what being part of a faith community offers that have been pretty well researched at this point um, around protective measures in mental health and uh, and raising young people. And it's not that it's a, a fail-safe program for, you know, never no. suffering from depression or addiction or what have you, but but there are like researchable protective components for our health and well-being in terms of being part of communities of faith. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that, uh, as you say, whether you're a person of faith or not, we, we really should be concerned about the, the research around de-churching. Yeah, the, the erosion of mental health should be a problem, you know, that, that anybody should be concerned about. And, you know, Tyler Vanderweel's research at Harvard on, uh, on people who attend religious worship services on a weekly basis is, is fabulous. I mean, we're talking multiple decades worth of research, you know, on this, um, clear physiological and cognitive and mental benefits from, um, weekly religious attendance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Okay, so another point of challenge that uh, that I found in the book was your thoughts on online worship and live streaming of services. So you you say pretty clearly, no holds bar, that uh, live streaming of services and online worship can actually be a factor in encouraging dechurching. Now. In the church that I serve, we began live streaming a number of years before the pandemic uh, because we found that it was a way of people staying connected when they were away or when they were sick. Uh, it was also a way for people to come in the doors before they came in the doors. So we would get, you know, a lot of people checking us out online to see whether it was a place that they wanted to then check out. Um so it would be pretty hard for us to to suspend the live stream ministry. It has served our church very well. And yet, you know, as you say, it can also be a, a factor in why people are opting out of actually being part of community. Yeah, you know, and this is where probably Jim and I have maybe <laughs> he probably feels a little bit stronger about not not caring for live stream than maybe where I would be personally. Um I I would say this, you know, can live stream, you know, expand the reach of a local church? Yes. Can it minister to people who are in uh, more edge case situations, say shut-ins or other people who just for for a variety of reasons just physically can't get to church. Um, yes, it can. Here's what I would say. 
Um, what is lost? And it's not nothing, okay? What is lost by maybe ending the live part of that that thing? Okay. What what we have done is, you know, our you know our church services are available later on in the week online and posted to the same kind of you know social channels and the like. And so, if people want, you know, if you want the benefit of that kind of reach and those different kinds of things, then those things are there. Um, but we really want to encourage people to be, you know, to in to be in the flesh. You know, when you think about the the 59 one another's in the New Testament, you can't do over half of them without being in person. And you can't you can't participate in any of the sacraments without being in person. You know, we're. I'm going to I'll sound more fundamentalist here, you know, but it's like you're kidding yourself if you think that you've gone to church by sitting in front of a screen, because you can't participate in the sacraments, you know, if someone's mm-hmm. being baptized, you need to be there. You know, if, you know, the, the Lord's supper is physical, you know, like mm. you need, to, you know, you need to be there. And it's not the same, you know, even if you're, you know, watching a screen and, you know, eating a cracker and, you know, taking, taking the cup, it's just not the same. It's not the same. There is a, there's a metaphysics, of presence that -hmm. is very difficult for me to like, just kind of pinpoint and say, Oh, there it is. Like, there it is. The metaphysics of presence. It's just, you know, it's, it's over there. It's in that chair. You can go touch it. No, it's not like that, but there's just something that's different on, you know, and even if this technology that, you know, I mean, we know we're talking on this, you know, through this technology, but like, this is different than if you and I were sitting down at a table, you know, like, you know, face to face. We're kidding ourselves if we think that those things are are the same thing. And when, and you know, and really, it, you know, between the sacraments and the one another's, I just I can't get around the value that's there in terms of you know the gathered church, the ecclesia. Um, in that, you know, you're not gathered if you're not physically, you know, physically present. Is there spiritual benefit that's going on there? Yeah, sure. I don't, you know, I don't want to downplay or, you know, underplay that. But I just, I'm not fully convinced on the reach and, you know, edge case type arguments for, you know, continuing those things in a live fashion. Still happy to put a lot of stuff on, you know, online, but I would, I would just prefer that people, you know, um, be able to you be to end those things and come, you know, come do this live in the flesh. Yeah, I think that's fair. One of my observations, especially as we were reopening after the pandemic and that reopening has been an ongoing process, you know, in in terms of people people's comfort level in coming back to in-person gatherings after uh, all of the fear and isolation of the pandemic. Um, my observation is that in so many cases, like people sort of forgot what they were missing, you know, like, like you, you do get into a routine where sitting in front of a screen is, is 
for for a long time, especially here in Ontario, like that was the only option in terms of being able right. to attend church. And so you almost get like rewired toward feeling like this is it. And and you forget about the particular energy and um and and offering of having your senses engaged and you know being in that incarnational space with people so uh you know i uh, i was challenged by by what you said because i heard a lot of truth in what you were saying um yeah i think the the, the other challenge for me on that front is is also just like my, my kids are five and six you know so it's like Oh, if I put like live stream, you know, I mean, live streaming during COVID was like, I feel like it captured their attention for like two or three weeks, you know, yeah. and even at that, it was like, you know, they're super wiggly and whatnot. And it's like, okay, well, if they're, if they're doing that, like they're not getting much spiritual benefit out of it. And then, and like how much of my like thought life is now focused on like, you know, them trying to get them to pay attention to this thing versus like my own, you know, it's just like, I don't know, it just doesn't work for me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear you. Yeah. I I think that in your book, um, there's a lot about what you share and what the research tells us that feels really hopeful. Um I, I think it's really hopeful and important for us to know that for like a majority of dechurched people, there is not only a willingness to come back to church, but even like the intention to come back to church, you know, and and I think that is kind of connected to the boring reasons why people leave church. Like they don't necessarily see themselves as leaving church. They they see themselves as intending to come back. So there's lots about the book that's super hopeful. The book can also feel a little overwhelming um, because we are working against the grain of just sort of the basic assumptions out there of how uh, how society works and, you know, what we're here to do. Um, and, you know, in breaking down the reasons why people de-church, you also offer a variety of strategies in terms of how to re-engage people. And, and most of those strategies are just heavily based in like case-by-case, person-by-person relationship, which is um, important. It's, it's a lot of work. You know, it's a lot of work. And I think that uh, a lot of us who are in pastoral ministry can feel like we have heavy workloads. Um, we're we're trying to juggle a lot of balls in the air at any particular point. Um, and and it's it doesn't always feel like we have sort of a lot of space left over for taking on new challenges and um and the legitimate hard work that it it takes to re-engage people who have left the church so i had to keep reminding myself as i was reading the book that this has to be a 
this has to be a whole body of Christ kind of project. Um, it can't just fall to pastors. It has to fall to the entire church community. And I also appreciated that you named that we need to work across denominations in in reengaging de church people. That we need to like an ecumenical approach. We can't in any way think that we're in this by ourselves. And I don't think any of us can afford to get like a messiah complex about any of this that, you know, we're personally responsible for reversing these trends. What would be some words of encouragement you might want to offer uh, pastors and leaders in the church in the work of reengaging? Well, the the biggest good news and you know all the research that we did is over half the people who left um, evangelical churches are willing to return today. Mm. And so, I mean, that blew my mind. Um, you know, and of it, in the book, we we go in tremendous detail in this in terms of like four different profiles of people who left evangelical churches, and then a mainline profile, and then a Roman Catholic profile, and uh, you know, eat, eat, like. Consider, you know, one of those four profiles was, uh, you know, entirely non-white is the BIPOC group, Black Indigenous Persons of Color. That This group of people has been at a church for 25 years. Hmm. And two-thirds of them said that they would be willing to go back to church right now. Hmm. I mean, that blows my mind that you would have a habit that you haven't had in 25 years and you're willing to just do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now i mean so i just think that there's i think going into this project jim and i kind of assumed that having a conversation where maybe that involved inviting somebody to church might be a relationship ending conversation and right. what we learned through you know through this study is that's just a myth like for most people it's not going to be a converse, you know, that conversation is not going to be a relationship ending conversation. So if you're listening to this, I just want to get like embolden you with um, the and demystify, you know, and, you know, a lot here and say, you know, it, it, look, God is good and he's in control. OK, mm. and that means that he has intentionally put a lot of people in your regular rhythms of life. And you know what? If God has put somebody in your regular regular rhythms of life, well, that's somebody that God just wants you to invest in. And so I found, you know, here's something that's important to me. Um, when I think about new relationships, I don't want a new, you know, a new neighbor, a new, you know, a, a new person in kind of my weekly orbit to, I want us to have some form of spiritual conversation relatively early on. I'm not necessarily saying in the first conversation, okay? You got to feel those things out, okay? When I think about conversations, I think about the acronym FORD, family, occupation, relationships, and dreams. Family, occupation, relationships, and dreams. I think each one of the, you know, when you're, when you're getting to know other people, that, those are kind of the, you're, you're typically starting with family, talking about work, talking about other key relationships, and then talking about, you know, just kind of, you know, wants, big desires, dreams, those different kinds of things. Mm. And so somewhere in between, like, you know, the family occupations, you know, occupation and relationships, I'll insert this one question and feel free to just steal this. 
Um, and it, it's, I think it's a relatively non-threatening question. And here it is. Um, this question has never gone poorly for me. And so here's the question. Are you a person of faith? Hmm. It's simple. It's non-threatening. It's not uh, religion specific. Um, it's not even spiritual versus, you know, religious. Um, you know, I mean, any, you know, you could be anywhere on the map. And mm -hmm. typically that, that question will surface what somebody's um, background is with respect to, you know, uh, tradition, uh, beliefs, behavior, and belonging. Um, mm -hmm. So that's a question that I just kind of a go-to question, you know, for me. And I want people to know that I care about that part of the human condition. And so I don't want to wait until we're like, you know, five years or two years or even really two months into, you know, a weekly rhythm of seeing each other without just kind of throwing out that, that non-threatening, you know, question. I think there's other things that we do, you know, if, if you want to continue those things, you know, further and advance, you know, spiritual dialogue between people. I think prayer is also something that's also non-threatening and is a way to, um, uh, continue, um, religious dialogue. And so that could be something as, um, you know, asking the question of somebody, Hey, um, I don't know how you feel about prayer, but is, you know, is there anything, uh, I, I'm a person of prayer and is there anything that I can be, um, you know, uh, praying for you about mm -hmm. right now? You know, the, you know, these are easy, just kind of non-threatening things to, you know, kind of insert, um, spiritual or religious dialogue into conversations that don't stray into culture warring or, um, you know, unnecessarily divisive or, or abrasive things. I think also it's just like going back to the, you know, if, if somebody tells you like, yeah, you know, like, oh yeah, I'm in such and such tradition and I've done that, you know, ever since I was this age and, um, those different kinds of things. It's like, well, if that person's like new to the city, you know, new to the city or maybe even not like, of like, oh, like, well, what does that look like for you right now? Yeah. You know, is an easy follow-up question to that. And you can just, you know, just kind of feel out the conversation. I mean, look, so much of like what it looks like for us to engage with de church persons, it just looks like embodying relational wisdom. And, and that really just looks like us being calm and quiet and asking good, curious questions and framing those questions in a way that are non-threatening. And so I think when we do that, there's real opportunities there. Yeah, I felt like a refrain that I kept reading throughout the book was just listen more. Like, listen more. Be quiet more. Listen more. That's related to being curious and relational and respectful and caring about people as people. Just listen more. Um, yeah, good, good, good reminders. Okay, just one final question before we... Uh, take a break and then come to our closing questions. But um, you have a great chapter about all of the upsides to being a church in exile, like being a church that is out of uh, out of the the mainstream, um, working against the grain. Can you just can you just offer a word of encouragement about being that church now? Yeah, so if you look at, you know, throughout church history, 
And I'm, I'm, I mean, and you go all the way back to, um, you know, the, the Old Testament people of God. I mean, an exilic posture, you know, being out of kind of being out of power, out of the, you know, or even physically out of the promised land, you know, that has been more the norm. More than norm. Yeah. Throughout. Totally. Yeah. You know, and so, yeah, I think we're in a bizarre place where at least, you know, for parts of the 20th century or, you, you know, even the majority of the 20th century, you know, having being more at the top of the power pyramid um, has, which is more of the exception than the rule, has got us thinking a little weird mm-hmm. about the the way in which the church and world, you know, kind of the posture between those two things. And so it's not like I'm over here wanting to just, you know, not vote or, you know, concede or, or give up, you know, throw my hands up against, you know, the uh, culture and society or say, well, I don't care about the common good. You know, I do care about all those things. I do have mm-hmm. thoughts, you know, on, you know, that, you know, to that end. I, I do think that there are certain things that we can do in society that lead to greater flourishing. And there's things that we can do that would lead to, you know, m- you know, things that wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't describe as flourishing. And so I don't think that embracing a, an exilic posture means, you know, kind of monasticism and retreating from you know, retreating from all kind of cultural engagement or, or cultural life. But what, I think what it does mean is we we are okay if not necessarily having our hands on all of the levers of power, and we are okay embracing the, the street-level uh, good works, you know, in other words, you know, just making a difference, um, you know, particularly at the at the local level. So that's what I want. You know, that's what I want to say just in terms of about embracing an, an exilic posture is making sure that we have good strategies and tactics about the ways that, in which we relate to people and the way that we the way in which we relate to society. Yeah, I think that there's just a lot of grace in that nuance that you're offering that. uh like certainly this matters like engaging with people who have become disconnected from the life of the community of faith it matters it matters for all of the reasons that we named we're not saying that it doesn't matter but also you know you're naming the reality that there are very much uh there's there's blessings there's grace there's um there's connection to be found in uh, having our our hands taken off those levers of power, as as you say. So, yeah, thanks for that nuance. Okay, we're going to take a break and come back with some closing rapid-fire questions. Welcome back. We are going to wrap up our conversation today with some closing questions. So, Michael, if you were hope for a day, what would that day look like? Hope for a day. Um, <laughs> um I don't even <laughs> I don't even have much of a category for <laughs> being pope for a day. Um, 
I mean, it, maybe is there a way you can rephrase that question? Like, put put it differently. Well, like if you were in charge of, um, you know, what a a billion Christians were were going to prioritize for a day. Is that Got a it. fair reframe? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's 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 much. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, yeah, I mean, I would encourage people to, uh, <laughs> to 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 some very simple things, and that would be um, God's word. Um, I would point them to um, their reliance on on God through prayer. Um, I would point them to the importance of a Christian community, and I would point them towards a particularly embodied Christian community. And I would point them towards um, having uh, close relationships with people who don't know Jesus. I mean, nothing more complex than, than really that. Yeah, that sounds pretty consistent with what you talk about in the book and what you've talked about in this interview, so it tracks. That's great. Okay, if there were a theologian or historical Christian figure you would want to meet or bring back to life, have a sit-down with, who would that be? Uh, without a doubt, it would be St. Augustine. Um, okay. I, Augustine is just endlessly fascinating. Um I, I really like people who um sinned spectacularly <laughs> um and really and really continue to struggle and wrestle um you know e- even in their you know in their faith journey and so Augustine is certainly all of those things um he also you know being you know having the north african background and then the life in italy um, just and at such a key time in church history, um, you know, the decline of the Roman Empire and a time of decadence as well. Uh, I think that his time period is very relevant in terms of, I think that he would have some very keen insights on what it looks like to be in the late, late modern era moving into uh you know highly secular and post christian um context so and augustine was just one of those people who seemed to be brilliant in the mind but also have tremendous depth in the heart mm-hmm. and compassion um for those who um you know who were lost and you know lost in their sin and in their idols and so Augustine would just be my clear choice. I think that, you know, si- you know, City of God and Confessions are just um, essential pillars um, for the faith. And so I, I have so many questions that I'd love to ask him. And yeah, he, he would be the, the primary conversation partner I would want to have. Well, I appreciate those parallels between his time and ours. And I appreciate a saint who keeps it real. So... That's great. Okay, final question. What are your hopes for the future of Christianity? Well, I mean, that's an easy question. I mean, the, the hope for the future of Christianity is, <laughs> is always the gospel. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, the, it's, you know, it's, we know the end of the story. Um, you know, the kingdom of God comes, Christ returns. Um, you know, he establishes his kingdom where there's nothing but truth, goodness, and beauty. 
I mean, and the gates of hell will not prevail against yeah. any of that. And so that's the hope, you know, in all of these things. You know, I don't necessarily have to have major hope in in terms of like the church in the West, whether that's continental Europe, the UK, Canada, or, you know, United States or North America. Um, I think that we have some real challenges in the West. Um, so I, I do look to the global South and the church in the global East as being also tremendously bright points. I think that the church in the global South and the, glo- and the global East is uniquely positioned to take the gospel even further into, you know, some of the most challenging parts of the gospel that are most um, resistant or hesitant to the gospel, particularly, you know, what some have referred to as the 1040 window um, or, you know, the the kind of Middle East, um, you know, South Asia, um, on over through North Africa. So I think um, I have a lot of hope um, on what, you know, what's occurring in Latin America, what's occurring in Africa, what's occurring in various parts of East Asia. I mean, just tremendous advance of the gospel and people who are, you know, just have, who embar- who would embarrass us with um, the faith that they possess and their willingness to, to fight against um, sin and idols and, you know, and really, you know, take, you know, take the, take the gospel seriously. I'll say also, I'm very encouraged by, you know, I'm an elder millennial um, at 41. Um, I'm very encouraged by Gen Z. Um, you know, the the folks, particularly the older folks in Gen Z, you know, so those who are like in the 18 to 25 year old, you know, age range. I see stuff like, you know, some of the revivals that have been kind of, you know, washing over some of our college campuses here over the past few years. Um, anecdotally, just people who are in this age range who are in my life. I mean, so many of, <laughs> never thought I'd say young people, but, you know, so many of these young people are, they're so much further advanced than what I was at that same, you know, time frame and age. And I, I'm just so encouraged by that. And it's like, I just can't wait to, it's like, it, it spurs me on to want to do better in, in my work so that I can, you know, just like, you know, people our age are being handed, you know, have been handed institutions. Mm-hmm. I want to do the best that I can with these institutions. And I'm really looking forward to handing those institutions off to this generation that's coming behind us. And I think that there's just, there's a lot, there's a lot of hope and a lot of opportunity there. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. I, I totally co-sign that. That's very important. Michael, where can people find out more about you? Yeah, so um, I work for an entity called the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics. Um, That's named after the late Presbyterian pastor, um, Tim Keller, um, who many people know from, you know, his book, Reason for God, and Mm -hmm. um, a couple other, you know, things that he's written over the years. And so um, that website's thekellercenter.org. And then I'm primarily just on Twitter in terms of social media, and that's about it. And my, you know, my name on there is um, MSG, just like monosodium glutamate, MSG (laughs) rights. So um, W-R-I-T-E-S, MSG rights. So um, I don't, I'm not hyper online or not like a, 
big personality. Um, I try to be very careful um, and uh, go long periods of time between saying things or writing things. Um, I I much prefer spreadsheets to um, and building institutions to uh, um, being any kind of public figure. So fair enough. (laughs) Well, we always leave people. And I don't know if I'll ever write again either. (laughs) Well. You, uh, it might be like having a a baby, you know, you sort of think never again and then (laughs) you forget. (laughs) (laughs) Suddenly you're back into it. Um, we always leave people with a word of peace. So may the peace of God be with you, Michael. Thank you. And also with you. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. One more thing before you go, do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people about the podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is a production of Torn Curtain Arts and Resonate Media. Our episodes were mixed by Danny Burton, and the production support is provided by Paul Romaglevitt. Thanks, and go in peace.